0: Morning, everybody. How we doing? Well, it's good to see y'all. Thank you so much for being here, for hanging out with us. Uh, I know it's a busy time of year. It's a busy weekend, so just appreciate you so much. Uh, for those of you that are here on our campus, thank you so much. Those of you that are hanging out with us online, really, really glad you're joining us today. We are finishing up uh, a series called "Should Happens, and it's based on this book written by Todd Clark that's called "Should Happen." Some of y'all know Todd. Uh, he lives here in Huntington. He's actually sitting right over here in the section. I saw him a minute ago, um, so I'm gonna embarrass him because I can. Uh, but he was here a couple weeks ago and kicked off the series, but he, he wrote this book. And I just wanna let you know one last time, uh, if you're here today, because he he's over there. If you're here today and you like kind of what we're talking about, and you like all this, uh, you can buy this book. It's a great, great book. We'll have it for sale in the central part of our campus here, it's $10. I say this every week, but it's cheaper here than on Amazon. And I just, yeah, I just like that because you can't find anything cheaper than Amazon, but we are cheaper than Amazon. Um, If you're watching online and you can't get here, you can buy it on Amazon. And the cool thing about it is um, a lot of the proceeds from this book go to an organization called Children's Hunger Fund. And so every book that you buy goes to Feeding Hungry Children. And so it's a great book. It's a great cause. Um, I really, really encourage you to to pick one up. Um, You pick one up for yourself, some of the friends of yours, uh, and like you guys have a a lot of pressure, too, because, like, Todd's here. You're just going to hurt his feelings if you don't buy his book. So uh, make sure you pick that up because it really, really is a great book. But we've been kind of using that book as, as the basis of, of, of the conversation we've been having over this month. Because what, what Todd talks about in the book and what we're talking about throughout the series is how do we free ourselves from all of the, the shoulds that we experience in our life. And, and as we talk about shoulds, here's the definition of that. Here, here's what we mean. The shoulds are expectations that we place on ourselves, others, and God. See, every single one of us in our life, we walk around and we deal with all of these different expectations. Again, some of them are expectations we put on ourselves, things that we feel like, I should do this, I should do that. Sometimes we feel them from other people. Sometimes we put them on other people. But what happens is all of these expectations, all of these shoulds, end up being these huge burdens that we carry around. And they just, they, 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 they like crush us, they overwhelm us, they take the joy out of our life, and they destroy our relationships. And so what we've been talking about is how do we free ourselves of all of these expectations? How do we free ourselves and others of all of these shoulds so that we can live the good full life that God created us to live? And today we're going to close it out by talking about what I think is is the most important of of all of the shoulds, Because I think it's the one that, that we all, I mean, I think we deal with all of them, but I think this is the one that's so foundational to how we live every day. Today, really, what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about why some of us are so cynical when it comes to, to God and why some of us are so cynical when it comes to faith and, and the church. We're gonna talk about why, why some of us, we grew up in, in a, a, a Christian tradition. We grew up in the church. We grew up where faith was a big deal to us. But then somewhere along the line, we got to the point where we said, you know what, I don't want any more. I don't want anything to do with God. I don't want anything to do with church. I don't want anything to do with faith. And we walked away. We're going to talk about why, why some people who grow up in a very, very, like, strong Christian foundation, that now they say, well, you know what, now I'm an atheist, and I don't want anything to do with that. And I guarantee we've all experienced that in our lives, whether it was us on our own journey, or people around us, or our children, or our friends. We're going to talk about how we get there. And really, what I found, what I found in my own journey, and what I found even in talking to other people, is the specific experiences are all different. Like why people choose to walk away from faith, why people, uh, uh, you know, abandon their their belief in God. The specific circumstances are all different. But what I found is that really the reason that we do that as people is because at some point it came down to some point in our life when God did not act like we think he should have. Because the reality is, every single one of us is a human being. We all have this idea of how we think God should act. That, that, that you know, the, the, if there is a God, and if that God is good, here's what that God should do. And, and what I want us to understand, because I think this is important, is this is, not like, this is not just a Christian thing. This is not just a thing for people who identify as religious. This is true of all of us. Every human being on this planet has this, this picture that, hey, if there is a God, and if that God is good, here's what that God should and should not do a good god should heal children of cancer a good god should not allow innocent people to die in war a good god should save families from natural disasters and so we have this idea in our mind of if there is a god and if that god is good this is what that god should do and a lot of times and i think even more powerfully we deal with this on a personal level because a lot of us have this idea of this is what God should do in my life, and sometimes that's based on like secret agreements that we make with God. That, you know what, God, because I pray or because I read my Bible or I go to church or I give or whatever, because I do this, you should do this. That, you know what, God, I've, I've been faithful, I've been pure, you know, I've done everything you've asked me to do, you should give me a spouse. You should give me a husband or wife, but, but you haven't. You know, God, I've worked really hard, I've, I've done well with my money, and, and you, know, it, it, you should give me a better job that pays more money. But you haven't. And so we all, ever, again, this is a human thing, this is true of every single one of us, we have this idea of if there is a God and if that God is good, this is what that God should and should not do. And every single one of us has had a moment in our life where God did something we thought he should not have done. And when that happens, typically our response is we get bitter and we get angry. And that's what I feel like. I just want to walk away. I just, I just want to be done with it. And a lot of us have. We've walked away from church. We've walked away from faith. We've walked away from God because you know what, God? You just didn't do what you should have done. And I want to share something with you that I think is really important. I think it's super important. But it's not going to give you any comfort at all whatsoever. So I'm just throwing that out to the beginning. Here's what it is. God not acting like he should is nothing new it's not new I think sometimes we get this idea like God has always done what it is that he's supposed to do except in my life you know throughout history God has been good and God has been faithful and he's done all this but when it comes to me God you're not doing the things you're supposed to be doing but what I need us to understand is like as long as there has been human beings people have always struggled with God not doing what we think that God should should do there's a book in the Old Testament that's called Psalms and uh, the the old testament is the first part of the bible it's essentially the story of the rise and fall of the nation of israel and psalms it's like the prayer book of ancient israel it's a collection of all of these these hymns and songs and poems that people wrote to god and so they wrote these different songs and poems at different times in their lives struggling with different things some of them they're celebrating some of them they're mourning but as you read through the psalms you'll find over and over again People expressing frustration and disappointment because God's not doing the things that they think he should be doing. Here's here's just a few examples. Psalm 10 begins like this. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13 says, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And Psalm 22 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. And this is, these were from Psalm 10, 13, and 22. There's 150 psalms. So this is just a few samples from the first part of it. I mean, this goes on and on. And when you read psalms like this, yeah, you can see the, the pain and you can see the hurt. But I think more than that, you see the frustration. And it's frustration that I think we've all felt. Because the writers of all these psalms came to this place where, God, you're not doing what it is you're supposed to do. And when you find yourself in that place, you begin to ask questions like, God, do do you even care? Do you care about me? Do you care about my family? Do you care about my marriage? Do you care about my children? God, do you care about these people? I mean, do you see this happening? God, do you care about what's happening to these, these people, these children, these people all over the world? God, do you even care? And and what I would say and, and what I would want people to know is, is, yeah, God does care. He cares more than we will ever know. But he's not going to act like we think he should act. And that doesn't make him bad. It doesn't make him weak. It doesn't make him evil. In fact, if you want my opinion, that's what makes him God. What makes God God is he doesn't do the things that I think that he should do. As we close out this series today and we we talk about these kind of expectations we place on God, I want to look at what is really one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament. And and you know it's famous because it has a Broadway musical written after it. And really, if you get a Broadway musical written after it, you've kind of done something great in your life. And it's a story about a guy by the name of Joseph. And, And Joseph is one of 12 sons who's born to a guy by the name of Jacob. And Jacob's name is changed to Israel because he kind of becomes the father of the nation of Israel, who the Old Testament's really all about. And, and Jacob's 12 sons, actually their families become the 12 tribes of Israel. So what's interesting about this story is is yeah, it's a story about Joseph, but it's about more than just Joseph. It's about the origin of a whole people. And so this story is very foundational in the origins of, of the people of Israel and of their connection, their relationship with God. And so, so Joseph is one of 12 sons that's born to Israel. And of the 12 sons, Joseph is his favorite, hands down his favorite. The primary reason for that is because Israel had multiple wives and Joseph's mom was his favorite mom. And Joseph was the first son that was born to his his favorite wife. And so he loved him, he adored him. What's interesting about Joseph's story, and we'll see this as we make our way through it, is the reason we're gonna look at Joseph's story is because Joseph throughout his life will find himself in many different situations where there's all these expectations that we would place on God. That God, here in this situation, this is what you should do. God, this is what you should do. And Joseph's gonna find himself in a lot of different positions like that. And I want us to see how he responds and what that does for his life and for his journey. But what's really fascinating is as we make our way through Joseph's story, we're gonna see all the other shoulds that we've talked about. (laughs) We're gonna see all the other expectations that people place on Joseph, that parents place on kids, they're all there. And so Joseph is hands down his father's favorite. Everybody knows it. He, but Joseph's dad, Israel, is not the smartest of guys when it comes to like showering Joseph with praise. And so he goes above and beyond. And he does something for Joseph that he doesn't do for any of his other kids that just kind of sets his other sons off. Genesis 37 says this. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So Israel gives Joseph this this really nice coat that he doesn't give to any of his other kids. And uh, clearly, and we can understand why, that creates a lot of resentment in his other children against Joseph. They hate Joseph. They can't stand Joseph. And really, it's not so much for anything Joseph does or doesn't do. It's for the way his father loves Joseph and gives him all the stuff and doesn't give it to them. And so now you have this dynamic where you have these 11 brothers that hate Joseph. They can't stand him. One day, the 11 brothers are off in the fields, and Israel tells Joseph, he says, hey, why don't you go check on your brothers, see what they're up to, come back and give me a report? And Joseph says, okay. So Joseph goes out to check on his brothers. His brothers see him coming a long way off, and they say, this is our chance. Dad's not here to protect them. So when Joseph comes up, they attack him, they beat him up, they drop him in a pit, they eventually sell him into slavery, and then they go back home and say, sorry, Dad, your favorite son is dead. And so this is something that impacts not just just joseph but it impacts their father and 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 it's really kind of this whole messed up thing now what's interesting to me about this it's like i'm not going to say that joseph is perfect he's not if you read the first part of joseph's story he's a fairly arrogant young guy he just is the way he talks to his brothers he probably shouldn't talk to him that way but at the same time i have trouble faulting joseph with that because a lot of that rests on his dad you know, and if your whole life you're just told you're great, you're great, you're great, you're better than everyone else, that's kind of how you start to act. And that's why people go on American Idol and they sing terribly and, and they're like, but my mom always said I was so good, I was the best singer ever. It's like, well, yeah, your mom lied to you. So, like, in some ways I don't put that on Joseph. But, yeah, Joseph's not perfect. He is a little arrogant, he's a little cocky. But there's nothing, nothing that Joseph does in his life that deserves him getting beat up, thrown in a pit, and sold into slavery and now completely separated from his father. There's nothing that he does to deserve that. So now, Joseph's brothers go home, they think, great, we got rid of him, Joseph's dad's a wreck. Joseph, meanwhile, gets taken down to Egypt, where he's sold to a guy by the name of Potiphar. And Potiphar is a fairly wealthy, influential, powerful guy in Egypt. And Joseph is now working in Potiphar's house as a slave. Now again, this is a point where a lot of us, we would get bitter and we would get angry because we'd think, I I don't deserve to be here, I didn't do anything wrong. But Joseph doesn't do that. In Potiphar's house, Joseph starts working, and he works really hard, and, and he earns a lot of respect, and he keeps getting promoted and promoted until eventually Joseph becomes like the main servant in the whole house, and he's kind of running everything, and he has this really good relationship with his boss, a really good relationship with all these people in the house. Things are going as well for Joseph as they can be when he's in Potiphar's house, and then this is when everything kind of starts to, to, to get really tricky. Genesis 39 says this. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome, And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. So Joseph, what we know of Joseph is that he's a looker. He would have been on, you know, People Magazine's The Handsomest Man Alive or whatever that, you know, Most Beautiful Man, whatever that thing is. He's a good-looking guy. And while we don't know much about Potiphar's wife, the fact that Potiphar's wealthy, the fact that he's influential means that his wife is probably beautiful. I mean, he would have had his choice of any one of a number of women. So the wife that he picks is probably beautiful. So this is a very attractive woman, and she's like pretty straightforward with him. Come sleep with me. Let's do this. You and me, right here, right now. Now, this would be hard for any guy to resist. But then put yourself in Joseph's shoes where you know everything's gone wrong in your life, your life has kind of fallen apart. A lot of us in Joseph's shoes would be like, well, at least I get something good out of it. <laughs> like I may be a slave, but hey, at least I get to, you know, sleep with this really hot girl. But he refuses. He refuses. Joseph says, no, I'm, I'm not gonna do it. And at one point, he, he kind of says, he does say, you know, I can't do it because it's not fair to my master. But what's, what's really interesting to me is ultimately the reason Joseph gives. You know why I can't sleep with you? Here's what he says. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? I can't sleep with you because this is not a decision that would honor God. Really, Joseph? the God that allowed you to get beat up and thrown into a pit and sold into slavery? You're gonna live your life to honor the God that allowed that to happen to you. All right, good for you, I guess. So Joseph says, I I can't do that. That's not a decision that would honor God, and I'm gonna try to honor God with all of my decisions, and so he refuses. Now, she keeps pursuing him. She keeps coming at him. Sleep with me, sleep with me. He says, no, no, no. And then there's this crazy story where one day she grabs him and literally tries to like force it. Like we're going to make this happen. Joseph just freaks out and runs out of the house and she rips his clothes off. So he runs out of the house completely naked. Which I've always told people, I've always thought that's a great example of how you escape temptation. People always ask that question like, you know, I, I feel tempted to do this. What should I do? Like run away. Just literally run away people say, aren't I going to look dumb? Yeah, how dumb do you think Joseph looked running out of the house naked? He probably looked like an idiot, but he ran away, and he didn't do the thing that he knew was going to be destructive. So Joseph runs away. He runs out of the house naked. Potiphar's wife at this point now, she's angry. She's upset. She probably feels rejected. She's hurt. So what she does is she uses his clothes as evidence, and she says, listen, this slave tried to come in here and rape me. Took off his clothes, and he tried to rape me. So Potiphar has Joseph thrown in jail. Joseph did nothing wrong. In fact, in this case, he did everything right. He worked hard. He honored his boss's marriage. He he made choices that that, that honored God. And now he's ended up in jail for it. And now he's rotting away in jail. And then in jail, in Genesis 39, there's this verse. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor. That's cute, isn't it? He's in jail and God was with him and granted him favor. That's really nice. But you know, God, you know when I would have preferred you be with me and grant me favor? I don't know, before my brothers beat me up and sold me into slavery? Would have been really nice. Would have been super nice for your favor and your blessing to hit me at that point. Or even if that happened, would have been really nice for your favor and your blessing to hit me, I don't know, before I stood up for my boss's marriage and then got falsely accused of rape and thrown in jail. I would have really appreciated your favor and your blessing before this moment but I guess now that I'm rotting away in jail for doing nothing wrong, I guess it's it's better than never. And so Joseph's in jail, and and we're told that he earns the respect of all of the guards, that there's something about Joseph, the way Joseph lives, there's something about the way that Joseph interacts with other people, there's something about his outlook, his perspective, that, that even there in prison, people begin to admire him. And he doesn't get bitter, and he doesn't get angry, and he just keeps trying to move forward. It turns out that Joseph has this ability, this talent of interpreting dreams. And at one point, there's a couple of servants, servants who work directly for Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the most powerful man in Egypt. Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. And really, at this time, Pharaoh is not just the most powerful person in Egypt, he's the most powerful person in the world. So Pharaoh has a couple of his direct servants thrown in jail, and they have dreams. And Joseph is able to interpret their dreams and tell them what they mean. Well, one of those servants is a, a cupbearer, which means he like literally gives Pharaoh his drink. One of those servants ends up getting out of jail and is gonna go back to work for Pharaoh. And as he's getting out of jail, Joseph tells him, he says, hey, would you do me a favor? Would you, just, would you just put in a good word for me? You know, I'm down here, I'm rotting away in jail. I helped you out. When you get out, can you put in a good word for me and maybe I can get out of here? And his, his friend, his fellow inmate there tells him, he's like, yeah, I will. Dude, I'll totally remember you. I'll put in a good word for you. I will help you get out of there, but he doesn't. This, to me, is one of the most heartbreaking verses in all of Joseph's story. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. You ever been forgotten? You ever been betrayed? Ignored? Pushed away? Stabbed in the back? Stabbed in the front? Sucks, doesn't it? See, this is the moment where, for a lot of us, like bitterness and anger and resentment begins to kick in. Because we just think, this should not be happening. Especially in Joseph's shoes. Like, I I did nothing wrong, I did everything right, this should not be happening. Bitterness and anger start to take over because of all of these, these shoulds. And when you look back at Joseph's life, here's the crazy thing. Look back at Joseph's life, here's what you see in Joseph's life. His family didn't act like they should, his boss didn't act like he should, and his friends didn't act like they should. Nothing in Joseph's life went like it should, and it would have been really, really easy in this moment for Joseph to take all of that and to put it all on God and say, God, you've allowed all of this to happen. God, you're not doing what it is that you should be doing. And honestly, that's probably what most of us would have done, is to take all the pain and all the frustration and say, God, why? Why? This should not be happening. If you are a good God and you're really there, this is not what should be happening. And for us to get bitter and angry and to walk away, and and I don't think anyone, I don't think any one of us would have blamed Joseph if in that prison cell he just would have given up. Said, I'm out, peace, God, I'm done. I've tried, but you've never come through for me, I'm done. But Joseph doesn't do that. He doesn't. Joseph does something that quite honestly just blows my mind. Because here's what Joseph does. Joseph decides to trust what God could do rather than focusing on what he should do. And and when you read through Joseph's story, there's never like a moment where he says this, and so I don't know when it happens, I don't know where it happens, I don't know if it's just in him, but all throughout his journey, at every step of the way, Joseph continues to operate with this kind of sense of hope that even in the midst of this, God could do something great. Even in the midst of my slavery, God could do something great. Even in the midst of me being in prison, God could do something great. He has this this hope and this optimism that comes from not what he thinks God should do, but what God could do even in the midst of this. And and eventually, eventually, God does do something great. After the cupbearer gets out of jail, Joseph sits in jail for two more years. That's how long his friend forgot about him. Two years. We get angry because people don't return our text in two minutes. Joseph sits in jail for Two years. Then one day Pharaoh wakes up, and Pharaoh had a dream. He says, this dream means something, and he calls together all his advisors, but nobody can tell him what it means, and then all of a sudden the cupbearer goes, oh, I know a dude! I was in jail with him a while back. So Joseph is brought before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh tells him his dream, and and Joseph interprets the dream, and Joseph says, yeah, here's what it means. There's a big famine coming. And so if you wanna survive this famine, if you want the people of Egypt to survive this famine, you need to stockpile a whole bunch of food so when the famine comes, you're able to survive it. And Pharaoh says, that's genius. And to do that, it's going to take somebody to put in charge of it. And I I know just, just who to put in charge of it. Joseph, that's you. So here's what Pharaoh does. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as a second in command, and people shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Joseph then is taken out of jail and he's promoted to really not just the second most powerful person in Egypt, the second most powerful person in the world. And ultimately what Joseph does is he saves thousands of people in Egypt. And he saves really more than just Egypt, he saves the whole surrounding area. And what's crazier is ultimately Joseph saves his family. And he's reunited with his father. Now just for a minute. I want us to go back earlier in the story. This story, if you've never read it, it's a great story. It's in Genesis uh, 37 through 50, I think is where it is. It's a longer story, but it's a great story. I really encourage you to read it. But if you go back to the beginning of the story, in chapter 37, when Joseph goes out to meet his brothers in the field and his brothers beat him up and throw him in a pit. As Joseph is laying in that pit, bloodied and bruised, looking up, seeing no way out, do you think it ever occurred to him that this is where he would end up do you think in his wildest dreams he ever thought this is where this story would go here's the thing you and i as we read through the story of joseph every kind of step in his journey when he's with his family when he's in 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 egypt with potiphar when he's in jail every step of the way because you and i are human we have these thoughts of this is what god should have done they just popped into your head naturally. I guarantee as we were reading through the story, they popped into your head that, hey, when his brothers beat him up, this is what God should have done. And when he's in Egypt, this is what God should have done. And when he's here, this is what God should have done. Because again, we're humans. And as humans, we all have that like internal thing that if there is a good God, then this is what that God should do. And so all the way through Joseph's story, you and I had all of these shoulds of what God should have done. But now let me ask you this question. Did any of your shoulds, end up with Joseph being the second most powerful person in the world, saving thousands of people and being reunited with his father? No. He didn't. See, I get, I get how when, when you find yourself at the bottom of a pit and you look up like Joseph does, you can't see a way out. That's how some of us are feeling right now. Some of us feel like we're in the bottom of that pit. I, and I've been there. And every single one of us has been there. And every single one of us will be there in the future. And when you find yourself in that situation, you can't see any way out. You can't imagine anywhere out. It it doesn't occur to you that there could ever be something great. And that's why it's in those moments when we're in the bottom of the pit. That's when we want to give up. That's when we want to walk away. That's when we say, you know what, it's easier without this. And here's the thing. You can do that if you want to. A Whole bunch of people have. In that moment, you can give up and you can walk away and you can say, you know what, God, I'm done with you. You're not doing what it is you should do, so I'm out of here. You can do that, but here's the thing. If you do that, you will miss out on the great future that God has for you. That even if we can't see it, even if we can't see it, God is leading us somewhere good. You know what's crazy about Joseph's story? You know how long it takes him really to get like, from the pit to, to number two in command? It's like 14 years. 14 years. See, part of our problem is we expect God to do things immediately. It takes 14 years for Joseph to go one through the other. And, and I'm sure there was, there was parts along the way where Joseph couldn't see, and there's parts along the way where Joseph doubted. And I, I can about guarantee you he had that temptation to, to just give up and walk away, but he never did. Because Joseph kept holding on to, yeah, but even in this, God could do something great. And if you choose to just cash it in and walk away, then you're going to be walking away from the great plans that God has for you that he's leading you toward. See, the truth is, God has never acted like he should, and he's never going to. And that doesn't make him bad, it doesn't make him weak, it doesn't make him evil, it makes him God. And if you and I try to live our relationship with God based on what we think he should do, we're gonna have, we're gonna be in for a lot of frustration. Really, I would argue, if you live any relationship in your life based on all of these different things that people should do, you're gonna be super disappointed and frustrated, because no one's ever gonna do what you think they should do, let alone God. If you want to live a full life, I mean, Jesus said at one point, I came so you could have life and have it to the full. If you want to have the full life that God created you to live, if you want to live a life that's full of vibrant, life-giving faith, then here's what we need to do. We need to choose to trust what God could do rather than focus on what he should do. And I get, like, that, that shift from should to could, it's just one letter. <laughs> that's to see, right? But it's difficult and it will make all the difference in the world. If we can shift that focus from, you know what, my faith is not gonna be based on what I think God should do, it's gonna be based on the hope of what God could do even in this, if we can do that, that will radically change our attitude and our outlook, it'll bring us so much joy and peace, it'll free us to love other people, because what'll happen is all of a sudden, things in our life that seemed like, like closed doors, they'll become brand new opportunities. And things that were dead end will will become new beginnings and bitterness will will become joy. Really, this is what we've been talking about through this whole series. This is what the whole book is based about. It's about letting go of what we think should happen and embracing what could happen. That even in this, God could do something great. A couple members of the the band are gonna come out here and they're they're gonna sing a song. It's a great song. And as they sing it, it's a song that you, you may have heard of before. And we're going to put the lyrics up on the screens around here. And as they sing the song, what I want you to do is I want you to sit there and I want you just to listen. You can either listen to the words as they sing them, you can read along with them, but I just want you to listen. This is a song that talks all about letting go. It talks all about surrendering. And that's, that's really what's at the heart of, of what we're talking about today. Is that faith, faith ultimately isn't defined by what we hold on to, it's defined by what we let go of. And making that transition from should to could is about letting go and trusting that, you know what, God, I'm gonna trust that even though I may be in a pit and I can't see anywhere out, or God, I have no idea where this is going, I'm gonna trust that you're gonna do something great even in this. So I want you to just listen to the words of this song. And as you're listening to the words of this song, if you find yourself in this place where just deep inside you have this desire that says, yeah, you know what, I wanna let go. I wanna surrender. If you find that desire deep within you, I want to challenge you to just open your hands, because it's like such a simple thing, but at the same time, it's profound. Because opening our hands is is really a symbol of us releasing, saying, "Okay, I've been holding on to all of these shoulds, God. I've been holding on to all these expectations." But if you find yourself saying, "You know what? I want to release this," and just open your hands. Before they saying, "I want to read to you Psalm 13." I read the opening verse of Psalm 13 earlier. It was one of the ones that that I read that talked about frustration. And as I read the, the Psalm 13, it's a short psalm, it's only six verses. As I read it, I want you to hear the author's frustration. I want you to hear the disappointment. But I also want you to hear where they end up. Psalm 13 says, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me.
1: Here I am With all my intentions With all my obsessions I want to lay them all down Your hands, only your love is vital, though I'm not entitled, still you call me your child. God you don't need me, somehow you want me. Oh how you love me, and somehow that frees me to take my hands off of my life in the way it should go. You don't need me Somehow you want me Oh how you love me Somehow that frees me To open my hands up And give you control I give you control I've had plans They've been shattered and broken There's been things I have hoped in Oh, they fell through my hands, but you have plans to redeem and restore me, you're behind and before me, oh, help me believe, God, you don't need me, but somehow you want me, oh, how you love me, somehow Take my hands off of my life And the way it should go God, you don't need me But somehow you want me lost its grip on me. God, you don't need me, but somehow you want me. Oh, how you love me. And somehow that frees me to take my hands off of my life and the way it should go.
0: When you read through the, the scriptures, faith isn't defined by what we hold on to. It's ultimately defined by what we let go of, what we release. See, this is, again, the point of everything we've been talking about for this whole month. The faith is ultimately about letting go of all of these shoulds, the things that we feel like we should do, that others should do, that, that God should do. It's about letting go of that and trusting what could happen, what God could do in the midst of our lives, in the midst of our world. That's what takes us to the good full life that God created us for. that release, that surrender. That's where it starts. I wanna thank you for, for being here, for hanging out with us. In a, in a second, I'm, I'm gonna close this in prayer. But I want you to know that when we're done here in a second, if you would like to pray with someone, we'll have some people down front right over here and they'll have these little name tags on. And so if you want to come down front, we have people, we'd love to just pray with you. Maybe you got something going on. Maybe something's heavy. Come down here. We'd love to pray with you. Also, if you're you're newer, if you have questions, we have a, a room on the other side of our campus called the Hub. If you go out these doors and make your way down the main part of our campus, you'll see it. There's signs that say hub. We have staff and volunteers. We'd love to talk with you more. If you're if it's your first time, we have a gift we'd love to give you just for, for being here. So please go in there. We'd love to answer any questions, connect with you, talk to you more. Maybe you have questions about stuff stuff we, we talked about in here today. Please, please. Go down there. Um, Next week, we're excited. We're going to start a new series called Love Story. We're going to look at this incredible, dynamic, weird, bizarre love story in the Old Testament. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Looking forward to that. But let me go ahead and uh, close this all out in, in prayer today. Father, I thank you so much for your love for each of us. God, that you came down to this earth and you died and you rose again for us so that we could live a full life, a full life that starts now and continues on into eternity. And God, that full life begins with surrender. It begins by letting go, by letting go of all of the shoulds, the shoulds that we have on ourselves, on each other, but God, I would say most importantly, the shoulds that we place on you. And God, I pray that we can let those go, and as we do, the bitterness and the cynicism, God, can just kind of wash away. And God, in its place, we will find peace and joy and love in you. God, help our faith to be based on not what we think should happen, but on the hope of what could happen in us and through us and in this world. Father, we love you, we thank you, we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, God bless y'all, have a great week.